And welcome to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. We're joined this episode by Andy Anatko, tech journalist and author of a number of books on tech, as well as being tech contributor to WGBH, Boston's public radio station, and co-host of MacBreak Weekly and the Material Podcast on Relay FM's network. He also makes regular appearances on Twit and is a regular on the McNotables podcast with Chuck Joyner, formerly a tech journalist for the Chicago Sun-Times and a columnist for a number of magazines and commercial websites. He joins us to talk about all things tech and answer any questions you may have, something he does with deftness and an impressive bank of knowledge, I might add, and we're going to talk with him about a number of matters on my mind as well, but please don't hesitate to get your questions into us. Some are already coming in, whatever's on your mind, including the things you rely on every day, products, services, software, whatever. And I'm going to endeavor to weave in as many of your questions as possible, and welcome Andy Anadko. Thanks. Good to have you with us. Well, I said let's talk about AI first, uh, and, uh, well... We're learning that people aren't out there as into chatbots as many expected. According to Washington Post, chatbots, uh, chat, uh, GPT is down 10%. There was an article I read by Sarah Morrison, who I'm sure you know, in Vox. She was writing about mm -hmm. the bloom being off and consumers losing interest already in AI tools. Is that pretty much square with how you see things now at the moment? I would say so, because for now, like, this is all so very new. The, the explosion of ChatGPT was less than a year ago, actually, in terms of people knowing what it was about a year. It's been, been about a year ago. The basic technology has been a thing for about two years, three years. And of course, researchers have been working on it for much much longer, these long, these large language models and these generative AI models that are generating all that really cool artwork. But the... Uh, the reason why I think that people are kind of like losing the cool over it is that for now we've seen just the first generation stuff where, okay, we're going to, I specifically want to generate a piece of artwork. So I'm going to go to, uh, to mid journey and I'm going to go and generate that and have that. And that's going to be cool. Or, Hey, I want to, I want to throw some prompts at a chat bot. So, Hey, I'm going to go to chat GPT and, uh, and try that. And that's cool. Uh, there are, and there are a lot of people who are actually using it as a functional tool, uh, and a lot of people who are essentially learning how to generate these prompts for uh, ChatGPT, uh, uh, just like a programmer would learn how to write code and get to get the results they want. But the real magic that uh, that people are going to see is are going to is going to happen in the next year or two, where it's not a destination place, it's not a separate service. It's their features that are actually just woven into all the tools that you use. Um, just yesterday, uh, Google, uh, who was pretty much uh, they're in their own space race between uh, themselves and Microsoft about who's going to uh, establish themselves as the big gorilla for artificial intelligence and, and that sort of stuff, uh, they uh, took the wraps off of all the enhancements that they're going to be putting into uh, their 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 office suite. Their, uh, the, and... Uh, it's not going to be, hey, you've got Google Docs, you've got Google Spreadsheet, you've got the Google presentation thing, and now you've also got this extra tool called Google Chatbot or whatever. No, it's that it's uh, you're going to be uh, writing an email, and then you're going to say, and it's, uh, you've been in this email thread about this project that you're working on in the office with your coworkers for the past three or four months, 
and you need to say, oh, uh, well, there are these three things that haven't been done yet, and we need to figure out a schedule on how to do that. And normally, if you're slightly socially awkward, surprise, surprise, as a tech guy, I am slightly socially awkward. Maybe you don't know how to do that concisely and effectively, but you will be writing Gmail or writing your email client, and you can just basically say, hey, can you help me out with this email? I need to uh, I need to tell Roger and Steve and, and Lucy that we need to get a schedule together for getting the new facility up and running and it will take a look at everything that's in the message thread it will know from context what you've been uh, what you've been talking about and give you at least a first draft of that email and then if you then uh, instead of it won't set it for you of course the idea is to make it into a collaborative tool just like i might select some text and say please make this bold face or make the make the fonts bigger you can say please take these four paragraphs that i just wrote make it sound more professional and try to get it down to one paragraph because i want to make sure people read this and then boom it gets generated for you and that's going to be when people they they they, 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 they won't define themselves as people who do artificial intelligence they're going to be people who simply use the basic tools that everybody in this office and pretty much everybody in every office uses. Just like uh, uh, there was a time when you actually had to put on, you'd be proud to put on a resume and I know Microsoft Office. Today, like even kids going to school, by the time they get into seventh grade, they know how to use presentation tools. They know how to use spreadsheets. They know how to use word processors. That's table stakes. And that's what we're going to be seeing in the next three, four, five years that people are, employers are just going to simply expect that you came to this table understanding how to use AI tools to get more work done and to hopefully work better. Yeah, that's all in the trajectory of uh, where things are headed. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, and now yet there are people saying, well, it's kind of a party trick at this point, but maybe what's up ahead is all that great research yeah. and possibilities for medicine and for education and for really some very remarkable kinds of things. But there was a Pew Research, uh, I'm just thinking about for the nonce, Andy. Some, uh, Pew Research talked about 11,000 adults, and there's a lot of worry over these harmful effects. Um, out that is outpacing, at least in the present, uh, the sense that wow and enthusiasm. Uh, and uh, these things are hard to measure and hard to quantify, but uh, the biggest concern remains privacy. We don't have any privacy uh, protection law at this point. I want to talk to you, of course, about the big meeting coming up September 13th with uh, Schumer and, and a lot of big shots from the world of technology. But at this point, um, in fact, let me go to a question here from Jerry, which is right on point here. Jerry's up in your state in Winchester, Massachusetts. He says, what, what legal means could you use to regulate AI? I was around for the encryption legislation wars when it was, you can't regulate speech, coded speech, and people were putting encryption uh, algos on T-shirts. AI is code. Curious about <laughs> how this could be done. This is what makes this so exciting to me, that a lot of these are based on questions that society has never needed to really ask before. Like most of our most of the laws that we're dealing with right now, when you when you go to when you talk to legal historians, they will tell you, oh well, that comes that goes back to the Magna Carta. That's a that's a crisp thousand years old, or uh, in our own country, this is why all oh, the co it comes back to the Constitution, written <laughs> written like two and a half two and a half hundred years ago, and of course, and it's for now, it's been sturdy enough that we could interpret the intent interpret well well what's the purpose of this amendment what was it what what was it supposed to serve and extend that so that if uh, if a state legislature decides that look we want to make sure that any everybody who uses uh, uses uh, a porn site is an actual legal adult so they're going to have to provide their id 
it, we go back to the First Amendment that was just shot down uh, a couple of days ago, saying, "Well, no, because this is a First Amendment issue, so no, you can't this the, you can't have this law go forward." But there are so there are some kinds of technologies that completely crush all of that. Uh, there are now privacy is a sort of a different issue. That's something that we can absolutely do. We can simply say that all the personal information that uh, that I generate as a citizen of the internet belongs to me. It is my property. I can license it out to uh, Facebook or to Google or to any of the thousand different marketing organizations that are collecting information. But I can't. You can't just simply harvest it uh, and then uh, then monetize it without my knowledge, without my, without my permission, without my sign-on. That I think is very, very rational and very, very reasonable. And we're having long, long conversations with DC and state legislatures to try to figure out ways around this. Uh, the EU has some laws in place. Uh, the GDPR, famously, they they passed a few years ago after a long, long uh, period of debate and discussion. And it's kind of been demonstrated that as strong as their privacy laws are, that was just a first draft. Because you take a look at what enforcement of these rules are. This is this is why when you visit most websites, you will see a little pop-up banner at the, at the bottom saying, "Oh, by the way, uh, we have here's our cookie policy. Uh, you have the ability, you have the power and the and the ability to select which cookies that we're going to use for tracking and marketing, and which you can turn on and turn off." By the way, don't just blow past that uh, because uh, at this point, it's been compliance with this law is such that it's easier for companies to give you a standard interface, and they, it's a one and done. Solution for these website operators, and if you do this and get in the habit of it, you will probably see a, a, an upturn in in your privacy. Uh, but the thing is, we're seeing how well that covers a whole bunch of the privacy issue, but not the entirety of it. But at least they have this law in the United States. We don't have barely anything. If you're a child, you're protected by uh, the COPA law that basically says that if you're under age, uh, if you're under a certain age, I think under 13, no, you can't be tracked. No, you can't be uh, you can't be sent uh, targeted ads. Uh, there are certain states like California that is trying to that is trying to do their own uh, model legis model laws that will apply that state by state. The industries that harvest this information, however, are trying to, uh, it's, it's hard to, it's easier when it comes to, uh, uh, privacy laws, they would much rather, they, they, they're going to want to work the ref, uh, but they'd much rather work the ref at the federal level and work only one referee than have to work 50 referees. And so this is the problem that we're having, getting all this sort of stuff, all these ducks in a row. Now with AI, uh, it's, this is where we get back to, our existing laws have never foreseen this. How do we deal with this? Uh, the uh, New York Times and uh, other creators are essentially having negotiations with uh, Google and OpenAI, the company that does uh, ChatGPT, saying that, look, you know, you trained your artificial intelligence models by scraping all of this data. You have uh, decades worth of content from the New York Times that have trained uh, your language model on how language works. You owe us a cut of that money. And as much as I think that that's very, very appropriate, the question is, well, what is it about the the nature of a New York Times article? What is it about the nature of a book by P.G. Woodhouse that is belongs to you? That isn't just simply, hey, I just just uh, uh, 
I'm sorry, I got off, a little bit off track. Uh, like, what is it about this stuff that is something that you could be paid for, as opposed to no, anybody who read the stuff would just simply notice that oh, sentences, structure, sentence structures are like this. Here, are what paragraphs look like. We're going to have to basically make those decisions, uh, and this, it's going to be by modifying copyright law, modifying uh, intellectual intellectual property law. But uh, just to answer the question more directly. Yeah, we need we need privacy laws. We don't have them. And we're in utterly new territory, as you are essentially bringing to our attention here. I mean, it's almost like, what do we do with the former president of the United States who's been indicted many times? I mean, this is all <laughs> sort of new frontiers and all. And uh, uh, there's a sense that uh, Chatbot... Uh, has other problems, inaccuracies, biases. FTC oh, yeah. is looking into GPT now, in fact. So you've got all these things that are sort of uh, coming to, we're coming to grips with, but at the same time, I keep thinking they're going to be meeting, uh, Schumer's going to be meeting with a lot of people, as I said, on September 13th, and he's uh, going to be meeting with the head of Google, he's going to be meeting with Eric Schmidt, uh, so they're real Google representation, but also um, there are going to be people there uh, uh, who are, um, uh, what, the chip maker uh, head, uh, Jason Nvidia, Wayne. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, but they're talking about voluntary stuff. Where's the teeth in voluntary stuff? I mean, they're going to start from scratch, and they're going to have yeah. to move from there, aren't they? It can. I don't know how I feel about that. There's now. Uh, I am very much of the belief that it is very much time to impose stricter re uh, regulations upon uh, the tech industry. Um, the Clinton administration. Uh, I think made the right call in the 1990s. They almost explicitly said that when when the internet started to become a real thing, they almost explicitly explicitly said that we as lawmakers do not understand this technology enough to limit what it can do. So we're going to hang back, and our basic policy is going to be we're going to not do anything until you guys screw up so much that we need to jump in on this. And that was very very correct. The, the it can't be overstated. What a miracle the the modern internet is, because all it was created upon was a bunch of people and researchers and nerds independently deciding that here are just some open standards. Here is how uh, here is how any computer can talk to any other computer. Here is how uh, any computer can describe a document so that something called a web browser can display that and display the content. And here is how we can share uh, uh, information that's in those documents with other people. Easy peasy. So anybody working in their bedroom can join the internet, can write software that takes advantage of it. And that was all because there was no regulation saying that, well, each we have to treat each one of these people as a separate publisher, and therefore they need to establish A, B, and C, and they also need to know it's going to be, again, if you are, as I was, like a college freshman, <laughs> and you're, wow, this is this this protocol looks really interesting. I wonder how, I wonder how difficult it would be to implement this, like, on my on, on my, uh, on my Mac, and then after three days in which you miss a lot of classes, you suddenly have a working web server on your computer. That's how that's how big the power was. Today, however, we have already cre we have created now Google, we have created Apple, we have created Facebook, and we can't. It, we know what the internet looks like right now, and it's going to be very. And we're going to have to tell them that look, if you're simply going to be harvesting information from people. You got to knock that stuff off. If you're going to generate an AI that has been trained on every piece of information that you can get your hands on, including personal and private information that can later be be uh, uh, be accessed by almost, almost anybody, you got to knock that off, and we got to back that up with laws. With artificial intelligence, however, this is still very very new. Um, the uh, CEO of Google, uh, Sundar Pichai, 
uh, had a, made a comparison I thought was very, very interesting. Like when gene splicing became a thing in the 70s, when that became a technology, there was also a push to say, oh, well, how, how are we going to stop people from making herds of mutants? <laughs> <laughs> herds of mutant soldiers and then how, how are we going to get how are we going to stop people from uh deciding that hey i want a kid with blue eyes so we're going to gene splice them basically the science fiction those arguments with CRISPR science. are still going on i think aren't they oh, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. recombinant dna it's the same type of oh, yeah. thing yeah. no absolutely but the uh, but instead of regulating the technology to begin with essentially the the scientists the researchers the people uh who are mostly academics and not the people who are in industry at that moment decided well we're going to get together and as an industry and come up with some principles that are basic principles that we're all going to follow. And once they started with that template, then that gave legislators a, a template to work off. So I, I think the first generation should at least be created with uh, not necessarily as a we trust you to not screw up the planet with this AI technology sort of approach. I think that this should be an approach where let's let the academics essentially build the first layer of the pyramid, then we will look at the shape of it and decide what needs to be limited, what needs to be given room to grow and expand. By the academics, you mean the people in industry who are academics or the academics I'm, in the universities who are the scholars and researchers? I, I mean scholars and researchers, because they're researchers who, of course, they work for Google. <laughs> they, were, they work for OpenAI, and they're not going to want a whole lot of limits on what they do. I'll, uh, uh, rather, I'm sorry, the people who control them are going to wa not want them to talk about that sort of stuff. Uh, and so those those the people who have the best sort of wordage. Um, we did see uh, we did see a, a sort of cautionary tale in uh, 2018 where famously uh, Google had a stellar team working on uh, the, the, the actual academic subject of ethical AI, all of the issues that AI presents. Um, you mentioned how it has a cultural it has cultural biases uh, that it has uh, it can often hallucinate facts that aren't true because it's been trained on uh, largely on content that was just put onto Reddit, put onto Twitter, put onto social media. It reflects a lot of the hate speech and a lot of the the, the cultural hatred that is present on social media. Uh, but also, she was talking. Also, uh, this team is in invested in talking about: uh, should we be worried that these artificial intelligence systems are so big and so powerful that only a huge corporation or a government-level entity can create them? What happens when people who already have this amount of power get the get additional power of artificial intelligence? Uh, there's the uh, there's the ethical issue of. Uh, uh, as usual, when you have a, a new industry that consumes an immense amount of energy and artificial intelligence, it's not just a, an app that you're running on your on your phone or your laptop. Immense server farms that com that uh, that consume immense amount of power and therefore are generating an immense amount of impact on the environment potentially. Every time that an industry creates like this, you have an imbalance where. Uh, everybody suffers the effects of uh, impact on the climate. No matter where you are in the world, you will suffer whatever impact results. However, the benefits of artificial intelligence are not going to extend to everybody in the world. So what happens when you're saying that these people who are not, uh, who don't have the, in countries that don't have the economic wherewithal to establish AI for the uh, benefits that it can bestow, 
are we basically demanding that, oh, by the way, you're also going to have to deal with rising tides and, 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 sh and shifting temperatures. However, those of us who have access to Google and Facebook and all those other stuff, we're going to be the ones who are generating emails really, really, really quickly. That's And so this is all the stuff that these two researchers, uh, Dr. Tim McGebru and uh, Dr. Margaret Mitchell, had brought up in a paper that they wrote uh, with, a, I think, with the University of Washington. And it was ready to be published, and and their bosses at Google said, "Yeah, we're going to need you to take your names off these uh, off this paper." Like, why? And no, we're just we're concerned about the uh, the academic rigor of this uh, this academic paper. Well, the the problem was that they were they were basically attacking not attacking, but they were they were doing their jobs. They were raising the issues created by uh, the large language model that Google would then uh, was then going to be talking about in their big keynote just three or four months later. And now they're soon after that they were no longer working at Google. They both I think they both said that they were fired. Google says, oh no no no, they uh, they said that they couldn't work for us anymore, and that was it. So yeah, you can't you can't really trust researchers that are uh, that are working for industry. Not because they aren't as invested in doing an ethical job, but because, again, they can be silenced, they can be shut up, and they can be influenced. And those are not things we need right now. Yeah, well said. Um, and like I said, there's going to be a meeting on September 13th. There's going to be people from the creative community, civil rights, uh, labor. They're all going to be presumably educating legislators on job risks and on other things like intellectual property and spread of different disinformation. I'm just wondering, though, Andy, um, the day before, Apple is coming out with some major announcements <laughs> and uh, September 12th, uh, and uh, the big event is set. You've been following this closer than anybody I know. Uh, in fact, I've got a question about Apple that I want to go to here, but what do you foresee there? I mean, in terms of what's going to be unveiled or what's going to be revealed to us? Well, uh, every September, Apple has their big iPhone event. Um, the entire industry is has decided that we need to. They need to release a brand new phone every single year. It's a uh, the it's as close to the car industry as you can get, where it doesn't necessarily matter that the the new version of the Ford F one fifty is not terribly different from last year's model. But there are people who are expecting you to come out with a 20, 2023 model year version of it. So this is the twenty twenty three model year version of the iPhone, and all the all the improvements they're going to be making this year are pretty much just incremental. You can always expect that, okay, the CPU is a little bit faster. Okay, the camera is a little bit better. Uh, they might do things that are have to do with styling, which, again, another similarity with the car industry. Uh, but uh, the, the, the days where we can expect revolutions in phones is long, long past. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, very mature product at this point. And it's very, very hard to say that if you have a, a, a mid-range iPhone, a mid-range Google Pixel phone, a mid-range Samsung phone, it's very, very hard to say that one of them is materially better than the other. Um, and we'll, we'll also see uh, an update probably to the Apple Watch. That tends to be interesting because Apple, uh, they, again, they are a $2 trillion bordering on a $3 trillion company. They are not two hippies in a garage. Nonetheless, they do have certain principles that occasionally shine through. And uh, Tim Cook, the CEO, has often said, and I think very sincerely, that they regard Apple's work with uh, how technology can help people improve their health and fitness is one of the most important things that they're doing. So it's always interesting to see what they do with the next Apple Watch because the software they're going to put into it 
might give you new insights into uh, not you when you're not just you when you're running, not just you when you're feeling bad, but collecting data, very private and personal data, when you're just simply going about your day. It's really important to collect that baseline data so that when something does go awry, the watch and the software can say, yeah, uh, gosh, your pulse rate went from 62 beats per minute to 134 for no apparent reason. Uh, I'm going to give you an alert and you might want to keep an eye on this. Are you feeling okay right now? Uh, to say nothing of the safety features that are being built into these things. They, <laughs> like Apple, uh, Apple has demonstrated that they would do a really good job like producing horror movies for Apple TV Plus because now almost all each of each of these Apple events that introduce a new phone starts with like a video of, you know, slow tracking shot of misty for first godforsaken hills like i was hiking and it was on the third day and it was rainy and i didn't see the rock when i slipped on it next thing i knew i was tumbling down a ravine and by the time i regained consciousness i knew that all hope was lost because i was far outside of cell service and <laughs> and mystical music and the dramatic voices and that's when they tell you oh but thank god i had my apple watch that had fall detection and my iphone that could connect to satellites and send an emergency sos uh, so that so usually when the, when you talk about the the, the september event I'm actually more curious to see what they add to uh, the the watch and what they add to like these uh, medical services. I'm also curious to see what might happen if uh, they acquire Disney. I mean, this is really a hmm. possibility. I mean, I, I don't know how it's going to affect DeSantis's war against Disney, but uh, <laughs> a lot of talk about it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just I just imagined because uh, Apple is very very again they are a two trillion bordering on a three trillion dollar company when stock when shareholders have sa have said to tim cook hey we're concerned about like basically these these edge case like investors uh, say, oh we're we're concerned that you're why are you spending so much time talking about the environment and talking about uh, uh talking about uh, social issues and tim cook I'm, i can almost quote him basically stared at him in a very level <laughs> tone of voice and said we feel as though our stock performs very very well <laughs> if you're if you're upset with this policy you're free to sell that stock we think you will find people willing to buy it very quickly so that's how he disposes <laughs> that's how he disposes of that um well a but, question about apple but, this is uh, brian in atlanta who says you think apple will quietly update the 15 inch macbook air this october with the new m3 alongside the standard macbook air um don't know yet. The M3, what he's talking about is the new series of uh, Apple Silicon processors. This is one of the biggest technological leaps that Apple has made in the history of the Macintosh, basically building their own CPUs to do specifically the job of being a Macintosh, not just buying CPUs from Intel and trying to make them make do. So there's been a lot of speculation as to when the third generation of these CPUs is going to be seen in uh, is going to be seen in these less expensive machines. And I don't know yet. Uh, it's possible that they're just going to say that we're happy with uh, the upgrade path that we've had so far. We don't think we're ready to uh, release it until next year. We don't feel that we have to. We think we're giving our users a lot of uh, a lot of power in a, in a compact uh, compact uh, form, uh, and we're happy with it right now. I'm sorry, but let, let me just uh, if I can go back to the previous question just a second. So there, there are rumors that uh, Apple might be buying Disney. Yeah, uh, I don't think that's I don't think it's going to happen because what's Apple going to do with with a theme park? You know. <laughs> However, the, C, the but the CEO of Disney has been who Disney's in, under such a leadership problem that they their CEO retired. Then the new CEO just made such a hash of it that the old CEO came back, and now he's very much in 
I just want to fix things and go back to my boat. And one of the things that he's sort of uh, floating is that maybe not selling Disney as as a whole, but he's in the business of saying, well, how about the things that are not necessarily Disney, like ESPN? We can sell ESPN. That's fine. We can sell some of the channels that we bought in a in a, in a, in a frenzy of uh, of anticipation uh, five or ten years ago. Um, I think that uh, buying ESPN would be a very interesting thing for for Apple to do. It would fit very well with their Apple TV. Uh, they made a huge success with uh, with uh, their purchase of excuse me their purchase of rights to uh, stream uh, professional soccer games, and so they could basically say we're going to make we're going to sell a lot of Apple TVs and a lot of subscriptions off of live sports. Buying ESPN would be a great way to do that. But who knows? They have they have enough money they could write the check and actually do it. But who knows if they're going to they're going to actually go ahead and do it. Well, I've got a couple of questions right on point here. I want to get to a lot of many, many things I want to talk with you about. But this is Jason. I'll try to be Sarah. more brief. I'm sorry, you've got me excited, but with really, really good questions. So you get me into you get me into pontification mode. I will try to tamp it down. Pontification mode is okay. <laughs> I do it all the time. So we share that. We also share being <laughs> beloved in Canada. I want you to know your postcard. I'm well aware of. So, uh, in fact, uh, my mother was born in uh, London, Ontario, which entitles me to Canadian citizenship. Just the fact nice. that she was born there. Anyway, let me get to a couple more Apple questions. Uh, Jason from Sarasota says, do you like any of the sci-fi programming on Apple TV? Are there any underdeveloped properties that you'd wish made into the streaming services a la the Foundations trilogy? I haven't really gotten into a lot of the stuff on Apple TV yet. Uh, I have watched I, really Ted Lasso is the only thing that I've really gotten into, uh, and that's not uh, that's not a statement about the quality of the stuff that Apple TV has on their on their uh, on their streaming service. It's more like it's hard to. I'm ju I just watched the first season of Only Murders in the Building, so you got you got to find you got to find room in your room in your day uh, to to watch this sort of stuff. Uh, but I would I would love to see someone just walk up to J. Michael Straczynski and say. Babylon 5, here is a check. You notice that we have left the numbers blank. Make us a series. Make us a, a Babylon 5 series with lots of money, lots of marketing support, and all of the technology that 2023 visual effects can give you. Because, my goodness, that is such a – not only is that a really fertile universe for storytelling, J. Michael Straczynski, the person who wrote single-handedly five seasons of this when it was first uh, airing in the 1990s knows how to create stories with a beginning and a middle and an end this is not gonna be the sort of thing where you get a great first couple seasons uh kind of good third season and then season four you realize that wow they have no idea what they're doing there's they're pulling they're pulling ideas out of some place and it's not a not a place with a lot of light and <laughs> light and joy is it another apple question dan in erie pennsylvania Thank you for the questions. Uh, Apple seems to only want to talk about what's in the future. Do you think Apple may ever embrace a classic version of its product line? Gee, I wish I could ask a follow-up question about what he regards as, as classic. Um, one of the great things about Apple is that Unlike Google, they, boy, they have, they think with the same mind, they move with the same body. And so that means that if, it means that they don't dabble, you know, I used to complain, I think rightly so, that uh, about five or ten years ago, let's let's say closer to ten years ago, Apple was remaking themselves under the banner of go uh, the, the the marketing term go be poor someplace else. 
like in a, in a place where you could buy an equivalent uh, uh, Windows notebook for hundreds of dollars less than a MacBook, in a world where you could buy uh, you you could buy a, a desktop Windows machine twice as powerful as any Mac for half the price. And phones, everything. They were not interested in people who are uh, on a budget or even terribly interested in people in the mid-range. But now they still don't have a notebook that costs less than $1,000. However, they've got an iPad that costs $320. You don't, have to, you don't have to even be like an educator to get that price. You can walk into an Apple store, walk out with uh, an iPad for $320. And so if I were cynical and hardened, I've, I, you know, you know, it's a, it's quite amazing, Michael, that I've been in this, I've been talking about this industry for 25 years and I've managed, I managed to be as fresh, fresh faced and innocent as I was uh, when I was 19, 20 years old. Uh, <laughs> I could say that, well, still, why don't are you making a six hundred dollar MacBook? I think they can very credibly say, "Well, we don't make a six hundred dollar MacBook, but uh, excuse, we but we do make a three hundred and twenty dollar iPad." So that is kind of like the when you go back to. When you I talk think about your mutton chops help the, your innocence look. By the way, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it gives me that old that old timey. I just made. I'm just here manufacturing pickles, sir, for my little push cart in the in the Lower East Side. I, I'm a humble person. I'm clean but proud. Uh, but uh, but basically, uh, the uh, the Macintosh and Apple's. Uh, Apple's trajectory was started on, I think, the really the Macintosh when they became a sophisticated company that could create something as good as that. And that was always a very personal computer with a handle on it you could carry anywhere. And I think that the iPad carries on that legacy very, very nicely. Lastly, when you talk about classic stuff, again, I'm, I'm reinterpreting the question for you, sir. Uh, so I hope that uh, hope the person who asked this, the, you're finding the answer in what I'm saying. Um, I don't think that Apple wants to do anything unless they can answer the question, what can we bring to this product? What can we bring to this category? So if you're talking about like very, very basic stuff, one of the reasons why they don't make a $600 Windows notebook is because there are $600 Windows notebook. They're awesome. They're wonderful. They're great values. Uh, they bring they bring technology to the masses, which is something that technology doesn't always do, but it absolutely should. Um they're not going to create a product just to participate in that group. They're going to do it because they think that, hey, look, yeah, we can do a wearable wristwatch just like a lot of people, a lot of other companies are doing. But what is the thing that makes it, we're going to do that makes it special? And they said, ooh, what if we hire, like as on staff, just as powerful as the engineers who are designing this hardware, we're gonna we're gonna hire on medical experts who can guide the medical technology. We're gonna we're gonna hire away fitness experts from Nike who can guide uh, what workouts should look like on this thing. That's the secret sauce we can add to it. That's why there might be a half a dozen different Android Wear watches, uh, but there's only one Apple Watch, and that's I think what keeps them away from making uh, making devices that are just clutter. Another question uh, from Jason. Uh, you famously switched over to iOS to Android a while back and recently mentioned thinking of switching back. Why did Apple lose you and what do they need to do to bring you back? Well, th this happened a long time ago and it shows you why, uh, uh, boy, I'm in, I'm in a very, very privileged location because... Uh, whenever you guys, people who are not tech journalists are shopping for a new phone, you got to sort of, at some point, take the best guess you can, and now you're stuck for two years. I get to test out pretty much everything for at least a month. I get to borrow them for <laughs> the stuff for about a month or two, and then before I send it back. And oftentimes, uh, <laughs> like with, uh, oftentimes it's a it's a occupational hazard because I'll I'm, I've okay my loan period is over. The hardware needs to go back to the manufacturer. I'm like, but I don't want to send this back. I really like this camera. And Samsung had 
what I've, uh, and this was years ago, what I thought was the first Android phone that had cracked it, you know, where they had decided, they had realized where that, where Android phones were largely going wrong, particularly compared to the iPhone. And the Samsung Galaxy S3 was the one that said, okay, first of all, phones don't have to be ugly. We're going to make it look really, really nice. Secondly, we're not going to have all this pre-installed software, like a blockbuster video app, uh, a, a mapping app that competes with Google Maps that you can't, that you can't uninstall. We're not, we're not going to put all this, basically, step by step by step. They first took away everything I didn't like about Android. And all that was left after that were all of the advantages of Android over, at that point, uh, the iPhone. Um, Apple, uh, Apple has a lot of different kinds of dogma. I think we've talked about two or three of them so far. One of them is that they like to have control over the device. They feel as though it's the, uh, there are people who like to take vacations where they just jump in the car and go. And it's possible for them to have a really bad time, but they have complete power by jumping in the car and go. There are, however, other people who want to spend their week at Disney World, where uh, a very famous quote that I came across that I absolutely love uh, from an, uh, a, an Imagineer who uh, is old enough that he was actually working under Walt Disney at the creation of the parks. So he said to an interviewer that Walt Disney wanted to make sure that you had a great time when you came to a Disney, a Disney park. He felt this, he wanted you so strongly to have a good time that he wanted to make it impossible to, for you to have a bad time. Time, even if you tried to have a bad time. And that's what Apple tends to do. Great, but that means that uh, if Apple decides that uh, you don't want to have, uh, no, I, I, we don't want to let you like customize the keyboard to make it faster and easier to type. Uh, no, we don't want you to be able to, if you, if you, yeah, I know that our, our app launcher, you know, the app that you, when you wake up the phone, the little t uh, grid of uh, Apple uh, app icons. No, I mean, we don't want to, we don't really want to put a lot of effort into that, but no, we won't let you swap it out for something else. All the things I the thing is the thing is that everything I didn't like initially about that Samsung Galaxy S3 when it came into my desk to, to review, I was able to change uh, to make it into a phone that was exact worked exactly the way that I wanted it to, and it had a lot of features that uh, the iPhone didn't have at that time that I kind of valued. Uh, whereas the iPhone was like, uh, and I, believe me. I was when the, I I was there on the very first day with the very first iPhone. Uh, actually, so much so that I was one of very few people who, when Steve Jobs uh, demonstrated it like months before it was released, I got forty five minutes with a working iPhone backstage. <laughs> and so, so I am like an iPhone user before almost anybody was an iPhone user, and I had to confront the fact that when I sent back that Samsung Galaxy S three. I didn't want to be an iPhone user anymore. I wanted this. This is the tool that will help me day in, day out. This is what I like. I like the approach of it. I like the philosophy so of it. So it hurt to send it back, huh? Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. and and here's but here's and here's something that I think is is the most important part of the story. Um, I actually held off for a while because I felt as uh, incorrectly, wrongly. Part of my identity was tied up in the fact that, no, no, no I, I have an iPhone. I'm an Apple person. I, I got Apple stuff. And I really had to sit, sit myself down and use my dad voice on myself. And almost like, almost like uh, he, almost like when your father knows that you're dating someone that's not right for you, but you're you're sort of besmirched and be, be, be smitten with them and say, okay, do you feel happy when you're with them? Well, not really. Like, okay, well, are there problems that aren't working out? Oh, a lot of them. Okay, well, can you work it out with this with this phone? No, the phone won't refuses to change. And you feel very happy with this other phone, yes? Okay, so why are you clinging on to this thing? And so, yeah, it, I, had a, I really had to realize that uh, 
you can't, you, 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 you own, you have, you should have no part of your identity tied in with any product or any logos, certainly not Apple, certainly not Google, certainly not everybody. Every single time I replace my phone, and, and I'm sorry, I've been using, so I've been using Android ever since. I've never seen the need to, uh, to switch. However, every single time I, I switch to a new phone, which happens every two, three, or four years, usually when the, the thing is kind of worn out, I always have to make that choice. I always have to decide, am I going to switch? I, I've got a, th I'm not, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a freelance journalist in a rapidly collapsing market. I can't just simply splash out a thousand dollars for a phone because, uh, because I had a whim that I thought that was, that was going to be okay. When I spend a thousand dollars for a new phone, that's going to, uh, I have to make sure that that's the right purchase. So yes, of course, uh, two or three years ago when, uh, when it was time for me to upgrade, I definitely looked at the iPhone and I tried it for a good month. And like I said before, these phones are so similar to each other at this point, it becomes a point of style. And Apple hadn't done anything with the iPhone yet to make to compel me to switch uh, back to the iPhone from Android. Well, you're and lucky you had your dad's voice in there. Uh, it's like the super <laughs> yes. ego or Jiminy Cricket or conscience along those lines. Plus, uh, <laughs> when you when you gave that quote about Disney, I couldn't help thinking about all those people who were turned away from the parks because their hair was too long back in the day or they came <laughs> yes. barefooted or anything. Sorry, just a, a quick association. No, no. And speaking right. of quick associations, I... one final question about Apple, because we got lots of questions for you from listeners. Um, do you know what's, we got a, a lot of our listeners are down under and uh, there's this app store. Uh, Apple is uh, defending its app store and they're going to the Aussie government. Uh, I mean, could you sp kind of clarify and sketch that out for us a little bit? Do you know what's going on down there? Yeah, uh, every single big tech company is facing uh, attack from legislatures all across the world, and Apple's most vulnerable, and basically about antitrust. How they're now they're they're trillion dollar companies. Again, like like I'm saying, it's a very appropriate to now revise the idea of hands-off uh, regulatory policy. Now we have to make sure, hey, are you abusing your position as, as as an industry titan? And so one of the really Apple's biggest vulnerabilities right now is the the way that they run the App Store on the iPhone because. It's the only place you can buy, you can install apps on the on the iPhone. You have customers have no choice. You go, you only have to go through the app store where uh, the, all but the least successful apps pay uh, usually about thirty percent of all monies paid back to app, go directly uh, directly to Apple. Where uh, there are all kinds of really burdensome and stupid uh, regulations that uh, the developers have to follow, such as like uh, I, I buy my comic books digitally. Uh, through Amazon, however, I can't buy my comics through the app that I, that uh, through the Amazon app that that I read the comics with. Uh, just like you can't buy uh, Kindle books through the app, and that's because Apple says that well, we we need to get thirty percent off of all of your pro all of your book sales too. It's like why you did nothing to help us sell this? This is we're we're bringing it to you. No, no, we, you still have to on and on and on and on. So uh, Australia has is not like put the put the ban hammer on Apple yet, but they basically uh, the government had a finding that says yeah, I think that your app store is uh, antitrust and uh, basically uh, Apple's an Apple VP came in via Skype or whatever to testify in front of uh, in front of uh, their legislators and defend how they run the app store uh, and that's I think that's absolutely appropriate even even if it turns out that okay the, what the way that Apple runs the app store is what's best for the users and there are arguments pro and con about that Apple must be made to 
defend themselves to people who have the power to make them hurt if they don't like the answers that they get. I do think that Apple needs to change the way they run the App Store. Uh, they actually changed a whole bunch of rules three or four or five years ago uh, in light of all, all this increasing pressure. They, did, they didn't always give you uh, 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 forgiveness. Excuse me. They didn't always let you out of that 30% tariff uh, uh, if you were a small developer, now they do. And it wasn't because, oh, well, we were going to do this anyway. It's because, no, we're getting pressure from all kinds of fronts saying that this is not fair. We should do something different. So, yeah, so they're going to have to defend that to the EU. They're going to have to defend that to uh, the United States. It looks like that in the EU that they are going to be forced to allow a competing app store, uh, a, 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 allow, allow developers to install apps on the device without necessarily going through the official Apple App Store, kind of like the way that you can sideload apps on on, uh, on the Mac, and Apple's going to kick their heels, and they're going to try hard to fight that, but I don't think that they're going to be able to fight that. This is one area in which they are very, very vulnerable to antitrust. Boy, we could do a lot about uh, antitrust laws, but I want to get to a question that's sitting here from Scott in Las Vegas, and thanks for the question, Scott. He says, when are you going to finish your website? Oh, God. You're, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I... Uh, my, I, I've had an otgo.com for years and years and years and years and years. Uh, it actually started off, uh, I, this is uh, actually, I, I like when things come full circle. I talked, I, I, we were talking earlier about how the reason why the internet is so great is because it was built on open standards that again, even a kid in a dorm room could implement. Uh, I, I had a blog there since way before there was a word for blogs. So I was actually writing the, right now, uh, today, if you start a blog or if you publish on the web, whether you're small or big, you use a, 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 a service called WordPress or somebody else that automates everything for you. I had to write all the code myself to like post this stuff and make sure that web browsers could access it and all that sort of stuff. That's how long I've been doing it. However, yeah, it's been a shambles. It's, it's like this. It's like the story of like the best bar. The, the best barber in town has the worst haircut, <laughs> um, because uh, uh, my site got uh, my site got hacked like two years ago. So I kind of had to shut it down to make sure that uh, that the. Uh, that people weren't, weren't, wouldn't run into trouble when they access it. And I used that as an excuse. So, well, why don't I just rebuild it from the ground up? And the problem there is that, again, I'm a nerd. It's going to be, oh, well, there must be a better way that can lay this out. Ooh, if I write a little bit of code to automate this process, whereas if I just simply said, okay, let's go to squarespace.com, <laughs> let's give them a credit card number, and I'm back up in 10 minutes. So, yeah, that, that, please thank you, though, for increasing, the, for uh, uh, for reminding me that I have an obligation to get this done. Uh, things that have, in my world, things that have deadlines always take precedence over things that have no deadlines. And so it's easy for me to say, well, I'm going to be on the air in 36 hours and I've got 400 pages of PDFs of legislation and research papers I need to digest before I speak to Boston. I think I'm going to do that instead of working on my website. But yeah, I'm I, I'm trying to get this done in the next month or so. So please keep the pressure on because that make, make me feel guilty. I'm, I was raised Catholic. That that tends to work. Well, let me ask you, you said so you called yourself a nerd. Do you object to being called a geek? I remember early on in my career in radio, uh, I talked about geeks and somebody said, that's a vicious word to use and you shouldn't call somebody a geek it's like in fact i made an analogy to all these bad words used about different ethnicities <laughs> and i thought is it really that bad a word i mean no there, there there's no equivalency um uh, uh, there's when you talk about how words uh, 
slurs about et- certain ethnicities have been used to empower society, taking away the rights and the freedoms and the lives of people who belong to those ethnicities. It's gauche at best to equivalate, uh, make an equivalence between geek and nerd and that sort of stuff. Although, yes, there, there have been people who <laughs> have been chased down uh, high school hallways with that, with that being yelled. No, I think that in the, in, within my lifetime, we've kind of taken that word back. Nerd is more polite than geek, probably. Uh, but it's gone from, hey, you're a social outcast that uh, nobody wants to be with and you're not popular in your social group to somebody who has a really deep and nourishing interest in something that, uh, like I said, nourishes them and Can I call them. you what you are? You're yep. a pioneer. I mean, oh, when, it comes, when it comes to the Internet, when it comes to uh, all the things we've been talking about, you are a pioneer, and I give you a lot of props for that. I have to ask you, as a pioneer, you listened to the podcast we did last week with Tiffany Schlein, and we talked about dangers uh, of the impact, especially on young people. She's doing a film about this, and I know, like me, you were an admirer of her father and so forth. But I think, with all due respect to Tiffany, who I have a lot of affection for, a little Pollyanna-ish about the possibilities of technology, I tend to be seeing things in a more mixed way. And I wonder what your thoughts are, particularly when it comes to young people and the effect. Too much time spent with devices um, and really too many devices, uh, one might argue. Uh, I just wonder where you come down on all this. Yeah, you know what? If uh, I don't have kids, if I did, they would be no screens until they were twelve or thirteen, unless they were using it as just a passive, like here, here, watch a movie or here, read, read a book sort of thing. Uh, because I don't think that the technology is evil, uh, but I do think that, uh, boy, it has its dark sides and it has yeah, its I'm bad saying, actors well, and all that. Yeah, I mean, and my, my big, I have two concerns about it. The first concern is that. Kids' brains are still being are still wiring themselves up uh, in, in, into their twenties, but definitely in their teens. And we're not talking about oh, well, they're learning stuff that they're going to have to unlearn later, and they're going to have to like no, no. I'm saying that the computer that they're going to be relying on for the last sixty years of their lives is still being constructed inside their skull. The wiring that they that cannot be overwritten, that has to be accommodated for the rest of their lives, is being created based on the experiences that they're having. And it's really, really important that uh, technology and particularly access to social media isn't going to disrupt that process. I'm, I am so lucky to have been uh, born Generation X because I was born uh, late enough that I grew up with technology. You know, I had, a, I had access to, uh, to computers through schools and later through my house. Uh, since I was in fifth or sixth grade, I have I had no fear of technology. I was able to embrace all the stuff as it comes along. However, I was also born uh, uh, way back in, enough in the past that I didn't have to grow up with social media. I didn't have to grow up with the internet. I didn't have to grow up with a device in my pocket that has a camera and the ability to share what I've just seen and my immediate thought with the entire world. And I have so much sympathy for kids growing up under that environment. I would like to keep kids away from that until, again, they're 12 or 13 and they can have those conversations about here's what it means when, yes, I know that, wow, wasn't it embarrassing that your friend in, uh, in, in the cafeteria spilled something all over his shirt? Here's what happens when you take that funny picture and you share it with people. It means that this goes from a moment of embarrassment to a lifetime of embarrassment. Do you want that to happen? Uh, and then we get into the 
uh, I don't, I don't know why I shy away from the word abuse, but uh, the mon- let's monetization can of uh, of Facebook and social media apps, and again, all of these different marketing companies that are tracking everybody and collecting as much information as possible, kind of amounts to surveillance and abuse, and. Uh, we have, there was a very, very famous whistleblower at Facebook that uh, had a crisis of conscience, and she leaked an immense trove of internal documents from Facebook because they, they were concerned about, well, what, uh, what impact is Facebook having upon kids? A lot of that this. had to do with Instagram, too, though, when Facebook yeah. took over Instagram. And young, people, exactly. young girls especially, the kind of right. models they were given of bodies and all that rest of that. Yeah. And, then, yeah, and, the, and their, their own research told them, that, look, our product is harming uh, kids, particularly little girls with uh, body self-image, ideation of suicide, suicide uh, self-harm, all this kind of stuff. And Facebook said, oh, we were hoping not for that result. Okay, let's shelve this. And she said, no, we have to do something about this. So it's this cavalier attitude that really has to be addressed. This, this is why I don't think you should, uh, you should isolate kids from technology because the flip side of that is that one of the most important things when you are a teenager is to get that information that your world is so much bigger than where you are right now and this moment in 2023 when you're 12 or 13 years old and you're in a community and maybe even a family of people that don't like who you are, treat you with suspicion and scorn and ridicule. There is a world outside where whatever it is that makes you a so-called freak, you will be welcomed. If you could put that on them in a strong way, you would be absolving us of so many problems that we have with young people, especially young males who have access to guns that they shouldn't have access to to begin yeah. with, you know, feeling that they have to take action in ways that are against bullies or against what they feel is against them, etc. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a colossal kind of Sisyphusian, there's a word to grapple with, problem that we just are all facing now. And here's yeah. actually a question that's right on point from Reed in Santa Rosa. He says, AI can't fix actual human intelligence to make basic human connection, empathy, and communication better, or can it? And if it can, how? Um, it can because one of the ways that we communicate with each other is through art and through creativity. Um, Roger Ebert uh, made, had one of the best descriptions of movies uh, as uh, possible. Basically, he described it as an emotion machine. And AI, I'm sorry, I hate to interrupt again, but one of our listeners wants to know your relationship with Roger Ebert. So get back to your discourse, in a, but then maybe okay. you can take that too. I'll try. I'll, I'll try to make it quick. And one of the great things about artificial intelligence is that yes, it's it's hard to it's hard to think about people like me who write for a living having part of our work taken away from us because now what used to be quote unquote skilled labor is now something that anybody can do. Uh, but the thing is, there are a lot of people who have these images in their head that, but they don't have the ten years of training and here's how to operate a, a paintbrush. Here's how colors work. But if they can simply describe what's in their head to uh, a generative AI and keep working, collaborating with it, saying, no, I want that tree to be a little bit bigger, and I want this character on the side of the screen, they should be a little pensive, but not necessarily sad. And that's uh, that's a way that we can basically share our emotions and share our observations with other people. And that's how AI can absolutely help there. Uh, but again, the, 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 the principle is always going to be working, collaborating with AI, not have AI do our creativity for us, because our creativity is our soul. We can't automate our soul. Uh, now, in terms of uh, yeah, Roger, uh, well, I'll read the question, and oh, sorry, I hope ahead. we get to some consumer tips from you, time permitting. <laughs> but this is uh, 
Uh, he wants to know your relationship with Roger Ebert. What do you think he would think of the current state of movies and streaming these days? Oh, he'd be, he'd be all over it. He would love it. Um, my relationship, he was one of my best friends for, uh, really for decades. Um, and the, and the, the, the story of how I met him tells you nearly everything you need to know about Roger Ebert. He was one of the best humans I ever met. And, and I mean that almost as a product. I'm, I'm talking about like, this is the ideal of what it is to be a human. He was fascinated by people. He was fascinated by society and culture, and he was one of the most uh, empathetic people that He's I have ever met. He's also a great met. storyteller. I had the privilege of interviewing oh, him a couple of times and always loved talking to him because he oh, could spin absolutely. out a great tale. Absolutely. Um, and so uh, he was. Uh, he was. Uh, he uh, joined CopyServe around the same time that I joined CopyServe, like when the the pre-internet internet, internet uh, commercial like message service, and. He wasn't just, hi, I'm the great Roger Ebert. I've deigned to have my own forum here on CompuServe as part of a co-marketing thing uh, with uh, CompuServe, CompuServe licensed like, his movie reviews for like their service. And so once a month, I will be here to answer selected questions. No, he was in the forums. He was like having conversations with everybody because he wanted he really wanted to know what other people thought and share his feelings with them. And this grew from as uh, a parasocial relationship to an actual social relationship to a real friendship. Um, and I can't overstress, uh, he, he, he would have hated me to call him a mentor because he never wanted, it wasn't, oh, I'm the great writer. No, it's like, hey, I'm, you're a writer, I'm a writer, let's talk about writing. Uh, but uh, even to this day, he died uh, 10 years ago in April. And so many of the decisions that I make as a writer and as a professional go down to, you know, what would Roger do? Would, would Roger be okay with this? So you got your dad's voice and Roger's voice in your head still. Yeah. That's very good. Ser fact, no, seriously, seriously. I, dad, dad is the voice that I call to when uh, about my childhood and being a, being a human and learning what it is to go from zero days old to being 50-something years old. Roger is sort of my writing daddy, so to speak. I don't Please don't use that as a show title. Um but no, he, he would love this. He he embraced like, uh, one of the things that he managed to do that I could never do, even as a, even as a nerd. He created when he he did not want uh, uh, to have RogerEbert.com just be oh, and here's a mirror of my Chicago Sun Times reviews and essays. No, he wanted to create. Here's a place where people who are interested in the stuff that I'm interested in and people who are interested in arguing with me about stuff can come. And the message boards, the reply chains were civil and thoughtful and thought-provoking, even when people disagreed. And it was because of his steadying hand and his influence. He didn't have to. He didn't have to say everybody be nice to each other. Everyone remember that the, that person at the other end of the keyboard is a human human being. Uh, he basically created this aura that everybody wanted to live up to. And so uh, he very very famously, uh, when gaming started to stop being about chasing space bugs uh, and, and shooting at them and started to become about storytelling. He very famously wrote uh, an essay about, I don't think that video games are an art and here's why that opened up an amazing debate about, uh, about uh, video games as a storytelling medium. Today, I think he would be going ape with happiness about how he would say, I, I, I have just played, uh, he would have sought out and played a game like Red Dead Redemption or The Last of Us and been delighted to find out that, wow, I thought that this couldn't be a storytelling medium. I was totally involved in these characters. I was invested in their outcomes. 
the ability of an independent creator uh, with a couple of his friends to use a system like Unity to create entire 3D worlds and animate within them without having to find $100 million in investment from big corporations, that would have thrilled him. I'm, I, I miss him every day, and that's... His reaction to gaming would is part of the reason why I miss him every day. Well, I also want to put in a word for his attitude toward civil rights and toward uh, yes. African Americans and supporting African American filmmakers. And I mean, I had an African American wife. He was very involved in you know really working for that community in a direct way. And you're talking about knowing him from the uh, the Sun Times. Tim in San Lorenzo says, "When the Sun Times gig ended, we were all anxious about how you would pivot in your career. Can you give us some insight into that season?" Now, we could do a whole <laughs> couple of days on this, I suspect. Yeah, but... I know. I'll 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 try to I'll try to be brief. Um, and this is oh goodness, the way that I have to cut so much of the story out. Um, I was feeling again. Actually, we, we go back to Roger Ebert. That um, I was feeling burned out on writing about technology for a bunch of reasons, uh, and one of them was that all these co- all these companies again, Apple, Microsoft, Google, everybody they really try to work the ref in ways that they didn't used to before. Like in terms of you are here. Thank you for taking this meeting and this briefing. Uh, we are going to give you. Our, we're going to show you our slide deck. If you ask meaningful questions, we are going to try to parry them off because you are here to deliver our message to your readers, whom we value. And it didn't. And it didn't used to be like that. And I actually, over on my desk there, I still have a stack of like twenty different like mini posters that I made of different messages to myself to keep on track and find what it is I still love about this and is this still worth doing and still worth going for. Um, my uh, tenure at the, at the Sun Times ended, and uh, it, it ended about what five years ago, six years ago, at a time where. Uh, it was hard to it was hard to do the sort of writing that I wanted to do, which is simply twice a week or however many times a week. I I think of something that's interesting or important to talk about, and then I talk about it. It could be a product review, it could be a technology, it could be again inspired by Roger. Like he he he's the film critic that did not stop him from writing about social justice. You know, I I tried to take myself what what got me more engaged and committed to the rest of my life of doing this was discovering that no, I'm here to I'm here to cultivate a point of view about the intersections between technology and science and culture and policy and humanity. And that's where I'm going to uh, investigate. Um, I couldn't find a new gig that will let me do that as freely as possible. This is why I kind of shifted over to, uh, uh, the, the, to, uh, com and uh, blogging on myself. This is why I'm really desperate to get that going again. In the meantime, <laughs> it's uh, boy, like I was the, I was the person who, uh, was, I'm, I was the newspaper columnist in a world where everybody was moving to blogs. And then after I left, after I left newspapers, I shifted to terrestrial radio at WGBH. Uh, but that's wonderful because it gives me the sort of gig where they want, they don't want me to say, hey, uh, understand, our gadget guy is in for talk about the best back-to-school gadgets. It's like, no, they want to they, they want to talk about uh, they, 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 they want to talk about like why is it that uh, uh, that the EU and Australia have have a better handle on regulating uh, regulating technology than we do? Why, how come the ch- the new chairman of the FTC, 
who came in with the Biden administration, came in guns a-blazing, saying, I'm, we're going to put the hurt on all of these technology companies. How come that she hasn't been able to actually accomplish nearly really half of what the, she said she wanted to do? What's going to happen? with? Is, are we going to have to break up Google uh, because of their ad networks? That's the sort of stuff I want to talk about. So that's you, where I sort of get that sort of stuff. You've given a knife praises of why I love being in public radio all those years. I mean, that's what we could do, yeah. and that's what we did do, and that was our, our signature, you know, and I did it for decades. Uh, and I'm almost prompted to ask you, though, about, well, since you're concerned about social justice, like Robert Ebert was, and that's part of your whole sensibility, the digital divide. You're in Massachusetts. Massachusetts now, a new study, according to a new study, is better in its public schools than any state in all 50 states, way ahead. But there's still this terrible digital divide, particularly when you talk about poor communities and rural communities and communities of color and so forth. Well, we could do a whole separate podcast on this, but I'm, and I said I wanted some, some of those gadget uh, recommendations from you. But some thoughts from you on just where we are as far as the digital divide? We've come uh, a long way. It's, yeah, we've come a long way, but the thing is, it's a hidden problem. And the people who are being hidden away are the people without power. There are, we, we, don't, we don't even have to go to the global map. If we just look at what's happening in the United States, there's still about 20% of the United States that doesn't have access to broadband. And that stopped being an issue where, oh, well, gosh, I've got high-speed internet. That means that I can, uh, I can download my comic books way, way faster. No, that's how people get schooling. That's how people get job training. That's how people uh, participate in their jobs. If you can't stream a video at a, at a, at a respectable clip, your higher ability is much, much diminished. And the thing is, it's the it's the uh, rural communities, what you might what the cable companies call like the less profitable communities, that they're not being served, or they're being they're being served based on uh, standards for speed and reliability that were established uh, during like the Trump administration, when it was a very very industry friendly thing, where eh, so long as you can, so long as it's, it's fast enough, you can do upper and lower case on your email, and eh, it's fast enough. No, that's not fast enough, and they're, they they sh people should be having. Uh, these companies held their having their their feet held to the fire. Say no, you have to serve all of these people, and it's never just about uh, it's never just about this one thing. There are people who don't have access to banks, don't have access to banking. Cryptocurrency could have solved that, but it turned into a toy for really really rich and uh, risk risk friendly uh, investors to turn into a plaything. That's a terrible thing. Um, Technology is not going to solve any of our problems. Technology is going to be a tool that we find on the tool bench when we empower ourselves to say, you know what, this is bad. We're going to have to fix this. Uh, and so every single thing that technology does has an opportunity to become either a plaything or a tool or an empowerment thing for people who already have power, or it has the ability to take someone who doesn't have a whole lot of resources, who doesn't have a fixed address, and give them something as, uh, something that... Uh, lifts them up and allows them to participate in the real world. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll button this up because, uh, I, again, I, well, we're, yeah, you, we're going to turn on timer. I wanted a consumer tip and I want to read something that came in that uh, I think is a lovely way to conclude. But before I do any of that, I just want to get a quick read from you on something I was reading. George Chanos, who's a former attorney general of Nevada, says, what's next? And you may want to comment on this. The spatial web. The spatial web is going to have digital, uh, well, there'll be um, trillions of sensors. They'll be everywhere. And he talks about, you know, you'll be riding in your car and before you've had a heart attack, your watch will tell you 
that you're going to have a heart attack, tell the car, excuse me, you're going to have a heart attack, and then you'll be able to go to the next hospital that's closest by. Uh, I thought, there's something in this. I mean, this is not necessarily just science fiction. This may be indeed the spatial web where we're headed. Um. Yeah, it's a made-up term. I'm I'm familiar with uh, those comments. Well, Mapes wrote a whole book that's, on it. Dan Mapes, I guess. You're yeah, familiar. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, that's that's lovely. However, we need control. We need individuals to have control over that kind of data. Every time this 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 sort of system, this kind of vision for the future is is posited, we talk about, hey, there's somebody who is clearly having a medical emergency. Not only can we can we target that person and 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 find them out, but also we can direct the right emergency services to them very very efficiently. That's great. However, then they build the thing, and now it's a surveillance tool for so that uh, law enforcement, so that intelligence agencies can have more information about people without necessarily having to get a warrant about it. Uh, it basically creates uh, a power imbalance, a power imbalance, and makes the powerless even more powerless. And then there's a question of again, technology will not solve all problems. Hey, great! I'm glad that the Apple Watch will give you an alert saying, "Hey, you, there's something going on. Uh, I detected that you fell, and also that your heart is going haywire." Uh, if you tap this button, I'll call 911 for you and tell them your location. If you do nothing, I will do it for you automatically in 30, 30 seconds. That's great. What happens when they get to the hospital? Can they, can they, are they going to get the medical care that they need regardless of the color of their skin or their gender? Uh, are they going to get the medical care they need regardless of whether they have insurance or not? These are the things that we need to address that the, that the technology is not going to solve for us. Boy, do we ever, and so well said, uh, I'm with you. Uh, and I said uh, to Andy before we even began, I said, any friend of Alex Lindsay's and Leo Laporte's <laughs> is a friend of mine. And Peter from Las Vegas says, I appreciate the relationship with Alex and how you can be on opposite sides of thought and Mac break and still be amazing friends. It's a lesson for many of us during these times where it seems that all is lost. Nicely put, Peter. Thank you for that. And... Thanks. You may want to conclude with maybe just a, a few consumer tips or maybe this final question from your territory, from Boston, from Craig, who says, looking to the fall and winter, are there any conferences or events you actually can't wait to go to? So maybe I can merge those two, you know, some <laughs> consumer tips along with conferences. And then we'll I'll conclude. I'll give you the only consumer tip that, ma that matters. Every time you're contemplating an upgrade of hardware or anything, Ask yourself the question, is this purchase going to solve a problem for me or create an opportunity for me? If it doesn't do either one of them, don't. Hold off. That, that's what Don't get invested in the new shiny shiny. Uh, it's, if it doesn't solve a problem or create an opportunity, it's 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 no good. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not cheap. I'm frugal. I've I have my camera costs. I have a lens that costs like three times more than the camera itself, and the camera was not cheap. But the thing is, the camera is my spaceship that helps me guide through the world. I've had so much adventures and seen so many wonderful things simply by virtue of the fact that I have this really expensive camera around my around my neck. It, so it, 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 it definitely filled that role for me. That's great. But if I were to upgrade my camera just because, oh, well, it's got this new sensor and it's got the, the new version of the image. So I, no, no. It's just, can I, can I, will, I, will I want to walk an extra five miles around the city to look for pictures because I have this new version of it? No. Okay, good. I don't have to buy it. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, what was the second question? About uh, looking at the fall and winter oh, right. conferences or events you can't wait to go to. 
Uh, MIT, uh, excuse me, the MIT community has an event every year that is, I wish I can remember the, I, I go to it, I try to go to it every year, so I, I don't have to remember what the name of the conference is, but yeah, it's a, it's a, a two-day symposium, which is a you lot of... You put in a search re- engine, MIT conference that Andy goes to, you'll find <laughs> Yes. <laughs> no, just do a Google image search for really, really out there, nerdy-looking guy somewhere on the MIT campus. Oh, there, there are eight pictures of Andy. Um, yeah, I, conferences have become a, a, a smaller thing now uh, because, you know, people have realized that, hey, we can disseminate this information through streaming through the help of wonderful, talented uh, and creative people like Alex. Uh, so I don't travel as much as I used to. Mostly, uh, oftentimes, I will like sit back, like when the uh, uh, when the uh, FTC actually had a privacy symposium for two days. I was actually thinking about attending it uh, in D.C. because that's always, it's always interesting to attend technology policy conferences in D.C. And now I'm not in the tech community and the audience and the speakers. I'm in the, po- the, the political <laughs> the political community, which is like, whoa, there, there. I thought I knew what all of the meaningless jargon and glad handing was about in technology. This is a whole new vista, all these lands to, to explore right now. Uh, but mostly, yeah, mostly I'm, I'm going to conferences online and oftentimes it's the best, the best ones, the ones I never heard of until I saw someone in a message group talking about how he just came back from this place in uh, Wisconsin and they were just talking about, uh, they were talking about the lack of security in microsatellites, like, ooh, that's interesting. And there's conference videos, and everyone published a paper, and they are welcomed. They, they are very, very excited if you contact them and say, I don't understand. Are you saying that any, that, 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 that it's, a, it's a problem, it's a nation-state problem, or it's a personal security problem? And they're very happy to talk to you about it. So, yeah, the, the connection between people is now more important than just being in an audience and listening to a, to a slide deck. All I can say is keep writing, keep talking, and uh, keep informing us and enlightening us. And let me give up my thanks as well to all of you who had the opportunity to hear this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny live. It'll be available on both Apple and Spotify and at graymatter.show, where you can also sign up for membership. That is, of course, Gray with an E. And thanks to the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin and Jeff, and a thank you once again to this week's special guest, Andy Anatko. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for having me. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.